Welcome back to Series 3 of Mud Between Your Toes, Conversations with Pete Wood. In this series, I'm interviewing people from around the world, from all walks of life, and all with stories to share. So sit back and enjoy. Hello. Michaela Rong has been writing about Africa for the last two decades, reporting for Reuters, the BBC, and the Financial Times. She's the author of five books about Africa, including In the Footsteps of Mr. Kurtz, a fascinating and extremely readable account about the Zairean dictator, Mobutu Sesiseko, and I Didn't Do It For You, about the Red Sea nation of Eritrea. It's our turn to eat, the story of a Kenyan whistleblower, borderlines, a gritty courtroom drama, and most recently, Do Not Disturb, which explores the controversial career of Paul Kagame and the legacy of the Rwandan genocide. So Michaela Rong, welcome to Conversations with Peter Wood. Thank you for having me. Michaela, it's an honor to have you on the show. I want to chat about your latest book, Do Not Disturb, in a minute, but first, can we go back to your extraordinary book, In the Footsteps of Mr. Kurtz? It charted one of the darkest, but also one of the most bizarre periods of modern African history. The star of the show, of course, being Mobutu Sesiseko. The title, of course, is taken from the character in Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Obviously, the book is about your experiences working in the Congo, or formerly Zaire, and how the cunning and rather charming Mobutu managed to plunder the country's copper and diamond resources whilst quaffing pink champagne in his jungle palace like some modern day reincarnation of Joseph Conrad's Mr. Kurtz. He was the archetypal African despot going from hero to zero and accumulated vast wealth. So after all I've just said, what was he like? Did you ever get to meet him? I never got to interview him. Um, when I got to Kinshasa, it was 1994, and um, he was very much um, someone who had, had withdrawn from his own capital city and in a way his own country. He was the, living the life of a, a country gentleman in Badalite, which was where he had built a, a sort of palace in the jungle, Versailles in the jungle as they used to call it. Uh, and he was there with his wife and, um, and his mistress and uh, their entourage and, and sort of, you know, planting fruit trees and overseeing the herds um, and really just sort of enjoying being the sort of gentleman farmer, greeting the peasants, doling out money to local schools. Uh, and meanwhile, the, the Zaire was rotting. Uh, I mean, I lived in Kinshasa and um, there was always a sense it had gone through two bouts of pillaging by local citizens, um, very famous bouts in 91 and 93. So the whole place looked as though it had been through a war, but actually it had just been looted by its own inhabitants who were sort of so poor and desperate that, and there was so little security that, that there had been these two bouts of sort of massive pillaging. Um, and there were four generals who were really running the country um, and this distant president. And he used to come into town very occasionally for important press conferences or events. And you would, you would sort of be hanging on the edge of a, of a press conference. But 
I think, uh, you know, you could still feel that there was a sort of magnetism there, sort of hold that he had, uh, the, the sort of buzz in the air when he was in town. Um, he, he was charming. He was funny. Um, he was sardonic. Uh, he knew exactly, you know, what he had come to represent by then for a lot of the, the, a lot of Africa and also a lot of the West. He'd gone from being this great sort of Cold War hero to being, he, he sort of represented everything that had gone wrong in Africa. You know, he was called the dinosaur. Um, you know, his country was immensely rich, but immensely poor at the same time because he had, you know, he and his elite had looted it. Uh, all its mineral riches, all its sort of timber and oil and diamonds. Um, and um, I think he knew that. And there was a sort of bitterness there, sardonic bitterness. But at the same time, the buzz was all around him. He was a big man, a tall man. Um, he, he always wore that signature leopard skin toque. Uh, which was really his brand. He he would often have his sort of um, his 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 stick, you know, his his chief stick, which was supposed to be imbued with magical powers. Um, and yeah, I mean, he represented the archetypal African big man um, at its worst. It has to be said. I mean, the fact that the Concord flew to his palace in the middle of the jungle, I think, speaks volumes. But why do you suppose African nations constantly? put up with this sort of behavior. I think there's even a term for it. They call it big man syndrome. Um, yes, I think uh, one thing I became very aware of because I was spending all my time in Kinshasa and you did end up talking with, uh, to a lot of very, um, you know, dissatisfied, disillusioned, frustrated Congolese who were just trying <clears throat> to get by and finding it very, very hard. You know, inflation was completely out of control. No one was being, no one who worked for the government was being paid. Everyone was waiting for, for the, because the, the soldiers, if they weren't paid, would rampage through the city. Everyone expected that every month to happen again. There was this sort of sense of constant siege. Um, but I, I think the feeling was that there was this frustration. There was a sort of feeling of change is long overdue. We need a change. But um, the, the, the concept of most Congolese was this man is supported by the West. He's got friends in, uh, in powerful places. You know, the CIA had famously backed him. The French, you know, the Americans had invited him to, to visit. You know, each American president had invited him to Washington in their day. Um, he, 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 he was seen as being this sort of figure who was supported by these invisible Western forces. You know, whenever he got into trouble, Western troops had been flown in to save his bacon. Um, and very close to the French right up until the end. And I think that's, that's, that was one of the experiences I learned from seeing that, that um, the West often doesn't realize that in its tacit support, this will come up later when we're talking about Rwanda and do not disturb, by giving aid, by expressing, you know, compliment after compliment sort of being aired over a, an African dictator, um, by inviting, you know, um, them to visit your capital and by fating them and inviting them to dinner with the queen. You're, you're, you were signaling to their often very um, unhappy populace, um, we support this guy, He's, we've got his back. And, and then he ends up looking much stronger than he is. You know, everyone ends up thinking, oh my God, you know, he, 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 he's there, you know, he's, he's in control. We can't get rid of him. And what was really interesting with um, Mobutu was that 
uh, when the end came, it came very, very fast. It was triggered by um, the invasion of uh, in 96 and then 97 of this rebel group that was supported by neighboring Rwanda, which was not a large force. Um, and you, what you saw is, is just the whole security apparatus, the army, the Zairean army, it just folded like a stack of cards because there was nothing there. You know, none of these people had been paid. Uh, there was huge dissatisfaction. And, and what happened was you saw the soldiers just taking off their, their, their uniforms and sort of wearing tracksuits and becoming civilians because no one believed in the system. And it was that, that sort of tipping point suddenly happened very, very quickly. And I think it, it showed that all this Western support was largely had become a sort of mental fantasy um, it, uh, you know, it was a fantasy, it, uh, it was, a, it was a, a preoccupation of the Congolese people, but in fact, you know, the French were right there till the end with Mobutu, but no one else uh, was by his side. So it, when he went, it was all over very suddenly. Well, it's an absolutely fascinating book. I loved reading it. It's very readable. Um, and obviously, you're drawn to these characters who exude both charm, charisma, and extreme danger. No different in your latest book, I might add, Do Not Disturb, which is about Rwanda. Can you please tell my listeners what it's about and how you came up with the title? Yeah, Do Not Disturb. Um, usually I have problems with titles, but with Do Not Disturb, it just seemed very obvious from the start. Um, it, it focuses, it uses the figure of Patrick Karagaya, who was the head of external intelligence in Rwanda for a long time. Um, and he uh, was, uh, went from being Paul Kagame's right-hand man, his most trusted confidant, uh, you know, his sort of eminence grease, advisor, best friend, to um, lots and lots of personality clashes and eventually falling out with Kagame being jailed in Rwanda and then fleeing abroad when he was released um, and setting up an opposition party. Um, so it was very interesting because he was uh, like Kagame, a member of the Tutsi elite that had taken power in 1994. Um, uh, so this was someone right on the inside who had know, knew all the secrets, enormous privileged position, huge access, huge understanding of how the, the system worked in Rwanda, um, basically saying this man's a dictator and he needs to go and setting up his own party. So. Uh, obviously, that represented a challenge to Kagame, and he decided to respond in extremely forthright fashion. Um, so in um, 1993, a friend, an old friend, a Rwandan businessman friend of, of Patrick's went through town in Johannesburg, where Patrick was living in exile. Uh, they spent a couple of days together. Uh, he invited Patrick um, up to his hotel room in the Michelangelo Hotel in Johannesburg. Uh, and uh, a day later, on the 1st of January 19, um, 2014, uh, his, uh, Patrick's body was found strangled uh, by a commando of Rwandan agents who had been sent over to, to carry out that task. Um, so I had known Patrick, um, like most of the journalists, because Patrick, in a way, was not just the head of external intelligence. He was also the man who dealt with the press. And like many of the journalists, you know, we'd I'd kept vaguely in touch with him over the years and I'd sort of tracked his trajectory from, um, you know, being um, 
the man, you know, at the prime of his career, you know, the man everyone wanted to know to being uh, a sort of uh, alienated, exiled, down on his luck um, opposition um, uh, figure. Um, and I sort of thought this is a fascinating story. The, the you know, Kagame and, and Patrick had known each other since they, their childhoods. They'd sort of grown up together in Uganda where the Rwandan Patriotic Front was formed. And I, I thought this, this story has to be told because what, you know, how can you get to a position, uh, to a situation where, um, you know, one man is killing his best friend or ordering him killed um, uh, in a hotel room in South Africa? Um, uh, what does that tell you about, you know, what's happened to that movement, that Rwandan Patriotic Front, you know, where, where have things gone wrong, why has it fallen apart, you know, into different factions like that. Um, and the do not disturb sign, um, the, the do not disturb motto motif comes from the sign that was put on um, the door handle of his hotel room by his killers as they left. So they ran off to the airport closed the door behind them, put the do not disturb sign, which meant that his body wasn't found for, you know, a, a good day longer than it otherwise would have been. And I thought, in, I chose that title because I think there's a lot of um, self-delusion going on about the Rwandan story, uh, especially amongst Western donors who uh, basically um, uh, keep, keep the Rwandan economy afloat with their aid. Um, in, in that they've sort of become so seduced and bewitched by this um, development story because Rwanda sort of ticks all the right boxes on the sustainable development goals um, and it's clean and it's neat and it's tidy and everyone who goes there says oh my god this place is amazing it's the Switzerland of Africa and I think um, that the, the, the western countries who are in that relationship just don't want to see the dirty underside so it's all about, yeah, you know, let, let's, um, let's talk about mosquito nets, let's talk about maternal health, let's talk about primary school education, uh, and let's not examine the fact that every election is rigged, there's no real opposition, that the, the government is basically, um, you know, organizing a systematic extermination program as far as, as its um, critics in exile are concerned, you know, it's hunting them down, across the West, in Northern America, even as far as Australia, in Europe, uh, it harasses, threatens, beats them up, um, and in some cases, as with Patrick, kills them. And all of those elements, you know, they're not allowed to disturb this happy narrative of a successful, um, you know, development partner that, that, that is what the IMF, the World Bank, but also all the bilateral donors um, want to focus on. So, so it just seemed the right title. Well, he was supported by people such as Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, Bill Gates, of course. Um, and yes. it is complicated, isn't it? But you clearly felt otherwise. I mean, you're quoted in The Guardian as saying, well, actually the Guardian quoted, Kagami emerges from Rong's account as a murderously authoritarian figure, a cold, petty, and vindictive individual. And, you know, up until then, people hadn't really heard about that. You also said in an interview that there's no such thing as good guys and bad guys. Uh, yes, I mean, um, I definitely uh, put paint uh, Kagame in quite dark colors. Um, uh, because those are the stories I was hearing from his colleagues. 
um, and his um, people who'd known him since childhood. You know, uh, uh, admittedly, I was talking to people who who were in exile, who who've lost everything. You know, they've lost their jobs. They live in constant fear of their lives from Rwandan agents who they know are out to get them. Um, uh, they, you know, they're, they're, they're dependent on the uh, <laughs> asylum regimes of various countries they wash up in. So these people are, are bitter and upset. Uh, but it was quite interesting that even when you prodded them and you sort of say, well, surely, you know, you once were friends, you know, you must have something nice to say about this man's qualities. Um, they didn't, you know, they, they, they sort of couldn't really think of anything very complimentary to say. Um, and um, I, my feeling was, you know, we've heard a lot of uh, complimentary accounts of Kagame. I mean, you know, we've read hagiography after hagiography, and I sort of thought, well, there's another side to every leader, and um, he didn't get where he is by mistake. You know, he got where he is by being the most ruthless uh, of all those players, and by eliminating any possible rival and the successor. So I'm going to portray that side of things because that's that's what I'm hearing from my sources. Absolutely. I mean, it's very cloak and dagger. And, and as you say, he's very ruthless. So how difficult was it writing or researching a book like this? I can't imagine many people close to Kagami exactly being very forthcoming with information. No, it was very difficult um, because so many people would tell you things and then they would say, this must never be traced back to me. You know, no one must ever know that we've even met. And so, you know, anyone who looks at my reference notes will see that there's some, you know, constant sort of anonymity requested. Um, but then, you know, if I hadn't been able to include those quotes, um, then I, I would have had <laughs> far less material. So I had to make a choice. Um, I think that was just one of the frustrations. I hope that as time passes and maybe the situation on the ground changes, I'll be able to put the names in of some of my sources because um, you know they were people who had reason to know what they were saying. Um, I, I think you you always have to make a decision with these things. Uh, as I say in the book, you know, if I'd waited ten years, um, you know, uh, probably some a lot of these people would have gone on the record. They're not going on the record now because their lifestyles, their careers, or their businesses are still wrapped up in Kagame's Rwanda and they don't want those to suffer um, so I could have waited and you know the years would have gone by and then I quote them on the record but by then who would who would care because you know things move fast in Africa so you have to you have to make a decision uh, but it was very it was very frustrating I mean there are a lot of people who just wouldn't talk to me at all um, because um, they, they don't want to be seen in public criticizing Paul Kagame, he, he's a man who instills fear. And um, <clears throat> what, what was really striking was that he instills fear outside, you know, Rwandan and Ugandan circles. He also instills fear amongst development economists um, and people who you would think as, as Westerners living, you know, abroad would be happy to sort of go on the record with their comments. But even they were sort of saying, no, 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 you know, don't quote me. <laughs> Michaela, Kagami has been president of Rwanda since 2000. He consistently wins elections. In fact, he recently won a third term in office with a landslide, a final tally of votes, gave him a staggering 98.63% of the vote. So with that in mind, 
What does the future of Rwanda and the Great Lakes region hold? Well, I think this is one of my main points, which is what's the sustainability of this kind of style of rule? Uh, it's a question that's not only relevant to Rwanda, it's also relevant to, to somewhere like Uganda, where Museveni is also sort of uh, looking very, very long in the tooth now. Um, uh, you have a system in which um, uh, there's one man with extraordinary executive control. He's known for his micromanaging. There's no detail of Rwanda's uh, administration that escapes his, his very critical scrutiny. Um, uh, he apparently uh, has very carefully um, uh, not groomed a successor. Uh, this is what uh, authoritarian leaders do. They make sure that there are no possible successors on the horizon. Um, the possible successors in Rwanda all ended up going abroad uh, and are living in exile and fear for their lives. Uh, so there's no obvious successor apart from maybe a member of his own family, one of his children. Um, uh, and um, the man is uh, not in the first flush of youth. Uh, there have been constant rumors about his health. Um, last year, for example, there was a, a period of a couple of months in which he disappeared from public view. It was during COVID, so maybe that was the reason, but he was so absent. And he, he's normally a president who is always seen around, is, mm. is often attending rallies and on television. Um, and so he just disappeared. And uh, the rumor that was doing the rounds was that he had died of a brain tumor, uh, had been operated on in the West and had died on the operating table. Um, he then reappeared and gave a reassuring press conference, but it did raise the question, which is, uh, if you have a system which uh, one man is at the sort of the, the apex and the, all the, the levers of power, what happens if he suddenly goes? Uh, and I think that if I was a, a donor, uh, you know, uh, who regarded Rwanda as a key ally, that would be a thought that would be keeping me awake at night. Absolutely. So just to remind my listeners, the book is called Do Not Disturb. Now, it's just out now, available on Amazon and I assume in all good bookstores. Yes, and I think there are other also, um, I don't know where you are, but here we have lots of rivals to Amazon that you can order the book. Yeah, online. I mean, we've got the book depository. Um, right. I don't know what yeah. you have in the UK. Yeah, and there's an audio book which I ended up um, reading myself, um, uh, uh, which was quite an interesting experience because um, I thought there were so many difficult words in this book that if anyone was going to get them wrong, and I know I do get some of them wrong, it might as well be me rather than me listening later and thinking, oh, damn it, all oh, the reader didn't, didn't know how to pronounce so-and-so. Well, I deliberately left out a few words. <laughs> um, now before we go Michaela what are you currently working on well at the moment I'm just promoting the book it seems to take up pretty much all of my time um, because it has caused quite a stir which is great obviously as a, as a writer that's what you want um, but, but I think my next book might be a family memoir so I always am sort of uh, sometimes get from resentful Africans they sort of say why don't you write about your own country? Or, you know, why do you come over here and write about us all the time? And, um, and so maybe I might take them up on that suggestion <laughs> and write about my own family. <laughs> who, who are British? Um, it's a mixture. My dad was half Canadian and British and my mum is Italian. Oh, um, fantastic. So it's a sort of, it's a rich mix. And, uh, you know, it's maybe I've reached a stage in my life where I want to start thinking about my own roots and my own past.
and taking care of yourself. I wouldn't be too keen to go back to Rwanda in, in a hurry right now. No, I won't be going there for quite a while, but I knew that when I was researching it, uh, uh, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be back. <laughs> um, we're actually out of time. Michaela Rong, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Conversations with Peter Wood. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for joining me. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.